and you ask yourself, did I try hard enough? Did I do enough? Uh, where did I make mistakes? Um, trying to implant things uh, is very, very difficult um, because you have so many skeptics to overcome and you, you have to have a great deal of belief in what you're doing to persevere. There are many times in my 87 years when I say, why, they, why am I doing this? Am I going to have any success with it? And, um, but I, I, I did enough, I think, to, to make, to make be something to be proud of and to say, well, we built an infrastructure and it's, and it's been doing the field good because think of it, if you go back to when I started thinking about these things, say in the 60s and the 70s, how far business has come with language that we've invented or recognized or endorsed or shown as value. Uh, we've come an awful long way. We really have. And we've got a ways to go. And uh, it's right now, to me, one of the, the, this is going to be a little bit of a political statement, uh, I think we're, 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 we as a country have some very difficult questions to ask, answer, to ask ourselves an answer. And I've always thought, I've always thought this, that strategic management has not done enough with public policy. It needs to do more. Um, it needs to let people understand what is, what is capitalism, what is socialism really, and are, uh, what are, how can how can we how can we gain progress from understanding those things better and sharing in the problems? I, do, I just don't think we as a field are doing what we should do here. I don't quite know what to do and I, I'm a little too old to start, but, but I, I, I really do think that if young people would emphasize some attention paid to these things, it would be good. Uh, so this paper uh, began when uh, Paul uh, Drenovich uh, was visiting uh, on sabbatical at uh, Illinois, and then we were talking about, uh, you know, have, doing a paper for the field, and then uh, Paul had the idea of it would be great if we could get uh, Dan's many ideas as the founder of the field down on paper, 
And uh, so we had a couple of meetings at uh, what's called the Beef House. And for maybe for students in Champagne who like uh, beef, if you're not aware of it, it's a, it's a restaurant about uh, halfway between uh, the University of Illinois and, and uh, Purdue University. So we would uh, meet halfway and uh, share a couple of meals and uh, talk about the outline of the paper and so forth. And uh, even though with all those conversations, I would say the nice thing about today's uh, initial uh, talk that you, you now have recorded, Rich, is I, I, I appreciate even further now the, uh, that Dan's uh, career has been one of being an engaged scholar from the very beginning. And so in some sense, the paper more, and, and the other interesting thing is Dan didn't intersperse his own personal story into the paper, which he could have easily done so. But I think now that we have the video of Dan and then this paper, I think the, the connections between uh, his journey path and this paper, I think will be a lot, uh, a lot clearer if, if they're dovetailed together. So I'm trying to get the uh, thing to work here, page, page down. There we go. So in this paper, the, the structure of the paper is to develop and support the idea that there's a substantial research gap, which, which has arisen in the strategy field. So we present a problem for both the, the, the relevance and the impact of the strategic management field. Many scholars are, our concern is many scholars are no longer developing sufficient skills to conduct impactful research and it's unlikely that we're going to close that gap by pursuing our current uh, portfolio of activities for the typical uh, doctoral student in a program. So we also think that this represents a collective action problem because uh, it's understandable that students are under a lot of pressure to publish and what's good for perhaps one individual advancing in his or her career is, is different than the idea of what's going to make uh, as a system or as a field, what's going to make for a strong uh, diversity of, uh, of uh, research activities across the field. So we're gonna review the scale and scope of the problem and impediments to its resolution. And we'll connect to the, also the idea of incentivizing scholars to pursue more of the engaged scholarship research that we advocate here. Uh, Like-minded folks are uh, Ron J. Galati and uh, Kirana's book uh, on education, I think would, uh, would resonate with uh, the arguments we have here. And then finally, we conclude the paper with uh, future research that may yield uh, such value. So starting with uh, Herbert Simon in his 1947 book, which Dan uh, mentioned a few moments ago, so his, Simon's argument in administrative behavior, and also, by the way, Dan actually is right, 1945 is the original edition, and then the 1947 was uh, the second printing that had a little bit extra to it. So typically the 47 is the original reference. Then there was the 57 and the 76 edition of the book. But his argument is that the central mission of strategic management is to advance in analytical rigor and to enlighten for practical relevance. So the goals then are refining existing and developing new theories that are scientifically rigorous and practically relevant. And so we suggest a refocusing of strategic management based on rediscovering real world strategic problems, which kind of uh, connects very much to Dan's uh, journey that he described uh, beginning at Wisconsin and moving on to Stanford and since. Uh, Denise Rousseau it was, a, uh, was a assistant professor at Carnegie when uh, 
when uh, uh, Simon was there, and as I think she was uh, later president of the Academy of Management, she was very influenced by Simon during his time there. So she uses the metaphor of uh, focusing on the patient in medicine. And I've heard many times over the years, of course, with Dan, with his engineering background, uh, focusing on uh, engineering problems as being a good metaphor for thinking about strategic management. I think like-minded uh, thinkers in the strategy field are Jackson Nickerson at Washington St. Louis and uh, Todd Zenger at University of uh, Utah. So as a matter of fact, and a matter of fact uh, Nickerson has an engineering background, so it's not surprising that they argue uh, that the problem should be the unit of, an often is useful to have as the unit of an analysis and strategic management research. And as a matter of fact, for most doctoral students at Illinois, I think they're they're fully accustomed to me uh, really asking a lot about how they're formulating the problem. Because uh, I think it was the, the uh, scientist Kettering who said a, a problem well formulated is a problem half solved. And he had a number of patents in his career. So I think he was speaking from experience. So there's also different types of scientists. So some scientists are more like uh, Niels uh, Bohr from uh, Copenhagen. And he was also, of course, a frequent uh, a correspondent with Albert Einstein for as Einstein was developing his ideas. But much of uh, Bohr's research could be classified more on the theoretically rigorous side, but not necessarily having a lot of uh, clear applications. And then uh, the details of Thomas Edison, of course, he was very good on the commercialization side that Dan was uh, emphasizing earlier but uh, maybe less rigorous on, on the actual develop, the scientific rigor part of uh, the science. But then, but then someone who was kind of an exemplar of, uh, of a great scientific mind who was also coming up with lots of inventions that were practically relevant was Louis Pasteur. So, so indeed that's kind of the, the example of, uh, in, you, one can be both rigorous and relevant. So there was a book written by Donald Stokes in 1997 called Pasteur's Quadrant. And in it, he actually talks about the description of science by many that, that you have the basic scientists and then they throw the science over the wall and then, uh, and then the, the scientists then make it practical on the other side is a very false narrative of the actual scientific process. And his argument is that the, much of fundamental science comes more from the Pasteur path, that is, Louis Pasteur focused on a lot of real world problems and then he used his scientific mind to try to address those problems. So in that sense, the, the, the awareness of practical problems actually uh, facilitates theory development. And that's kind of the argument that, uh, that uh, Paul, uh, Dan and I have in our paper here. So achieve Pasteur's quadrant, we encourage scholars to return to participative form of research, like such as Dan's, uh, you know, talking to uh, Hewlett and uh, Packard would be an example of that in their office and learning from them and so forth. So you obtain the vice and perspectives of key stakeholders, researchers, users, clients, practitioners, sponsored. This is what Andy Vandeman calls engaged scholarship. Yet the other uh, observation I will make is I, I don't think engaged scholarship is the dominant thinking at many of our elite schools. I don't, think, I don't think it's the dominant view at University of Chicago. It's not the dominant view at Columbia. Uh, several of the elite schools, it is, it is the dominant view I would say at Harvard and Wharton, but I would say they, those are the exceptions in terms of the elite schools. 
But the, but the other observation I have is while while many in the in the field may not necessarily follow the engaged scholarship approach, I find it very instructive that if one were to look at most of the presidents of the Academy of Management, they are engaged scholars. So the Andy Vandevins the going across the line here, Gene Bartunek, Don Hambrick, uh, Ann Hoff, my uh, co former colleague at Illinois, uh, Dwayne Ireland, Denise Rousseau. So I, 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 I think uh, many of the, those who emerge as the best and the brightest of the management field actually uh, took the engaged scholarship path. So it's, so it's kind of, to my mind, it's the road less traveled, but it's actually the one that is often, not for everyone, right? So for some people it might do very well being a, a scientist with mathematical models and specialize in that. And uh, there's room for that in the field too, as a pluralistic field, but we need a certain number of critical mass of people that are in the engaged scholarship uh, category that's really the glue of the uh, strategic management field. So, as our focus is a problem of the theory practice gap, there, there can be three different ways of describing this gap. The first way is to say, oh, it's a knowledge transfer problem. You have great ideas and we need to transfer them to the managers. But a second way to think about the problem is that science and practice are actually distinct forms of knowledge and it's not simply a transfer problem. And then the third, which is the one we really emphasize mostly in the paper, is that uh, we see it as uh, primarily a knowledge production problem. And we'll get to those details in a moment. So the knowledge transfer problem is actually the most common way it's described in the literature. It's the problem of, of uh, academics may in, at, at times indeed have very good ideas, but they have trouble uh, describing it and, and translating it so that it can be diffused into practice. And so this framing of the problem we argue in our paper actually greatly underestimates the challenges of the theory practice gap. So to kind of give us some hints of a second way to think about the problem, there's a wonderful book by a, a scientist, Michael Poliani, who wrote a, a book with a very interesting title. The title is Personal Knowledge, which is kind of uh, an unusual combination of words because most of the time scientists think about replication and it's really social knowledge, it's not personal knowledge. But Michael Poliani in his book actually argued that a lot of the discoveries of a scientist actually come about through the, the experience and the, and the tacitness uh, of knowledge. Uh, so so the, and tacitness meaning we, we know more than we can tell. Or there was a famous paper in the Harvard Business Review in the 1960s called, called uh, Wisdom Can't Be Told. So it's that type of idea. C.S. Lewis, of course, was a very profound uh, thinker and uh, not only was a great uh, discuss, dis discussions of uh, theology and philosophy, but also wrote wonderful children's books like the Narnia series. And his comment uh, in, that, that I remember reading one time that, I, that always stayed with me is C.S. Lewis commented that a true analysis of comedy may not itself be funny. So that the analysis of something is not the experience of something. So that one can be a brilliant comedian, but have no philosophy to be able to pass on to someone else. And secondly, you could have someone who writes a thesis in comedy who couldn't tell a joke to save his or her life. But having said all that, we mentioned we were earlier when this, this all started, we, someone mentioned Johnny Carson and maybe Rich is the Johnny Carson. Of it. Well, back in the day, 
uh, Johnny Carson on occasion on his on his show would talk about the philosophy of comedy. So he, he was good at he was both good at practice, but he also thought very deeply about the. Uh, I would say a more a more contemporary uh, is uh, Seinfeld. So you can ac actually go on on YouTube and look at Seinfeld videos where he actually talks very thoughtfully about the philosophy of comedy. So, th so the, the, the argument that we have is that uh, while they are different types of knowledge, it's quite possible that the know why and the know how can be complementary for having more impactful knowledge. So the exhortations then for academics to put theories into practice are misdirected because they assume knowledge of theory and practice and entail a, little, a literal transfer or translation, but we take a more pluralistic view that they are different types of knowledge, but they can be complementary. Probably one of the more effective uh, scholars to do that was a scholar uh, by the name of Nanaka who wrote The Knowledge Creating Company. He also, uh, my, my wife uh, Jean is actually a John Dewey scholar in philosophy. And so one year we were at Berkeley at a conference hosted by Tees where Nanaka was there and uh, and then uh, Gene and uh, Nanaka had a nice dis discussion about the philosophy of pragmatism. Now, part of the idea then uh, that I think is really important for the strategic management toolkit for any person coming out of a the doctoral program in strategy is to have some, some uh, appreciation of the idea of triangulation, right? So that, that you do investigative triangulation by talking to different types of people, that you know more than one theory so that you're able to compare theories when uh, for the applicability to your problem. And then also if you have more than one methodology in your toolkit, that is helpful as well. Now, of course, for the doctoral student, you, you, you can't do everything at once. I, I, in fact, that was a famous quote of Einstein, time is a very important element. It, it keeps everything from happening at once. So, so these are skills to build over a lifetime. And I would say the really exciting thing about being, to my mind, about being a strategic management scholar is, you know, by the time you're 30, you're over the hill if you're a PhD in mathematics. But I would say, I, I really do believe that in my 60s, I'm better at strategic management than I was in my 50s and I was better in my 50s than I was in my 40s and so forth. Uh, so so I, I do think it's a, it's a really exciting area where you, you, you have the opportunity of getting better throughout your career. It's kind of like the, the, the T-shaped scholar, right? You, you, you have a disciplinary strength and mine happened to have been transactions cost economics, but then over the years, you get to do the top part of the T, that is you get breadth of knowledge and then, that, uh, and then it's the combination of the two that can, can then lead to uh, exciting research that, can, that sustains your career. And then those were the first two ways of describing it. It's not exactly a transfer problem in many cases. And it also needs to be an appreciation that there's different types of knowledge. But uh, Ann Huff in her 2000 Academy of Management presidential address, I think uh, hit the bullseye, if you will, about the problem. And she described it in, in her uh, 2000 uh, paper in AMR as the knowledge production problem. So the, 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 the knowledge production problem is the following. A problem is posed with little evidence of the prevalence of the problem. As a matter of fact, that's the way Dan kind of started his uh, narrative uh, earlier today is that you know, he often was skeptical about some of the theories that were being uh, proposed and repeated, but he wasn't convinced there was a lot of evidence that out in the world of experience, 
that that were problems that managers were actually facing. So you need the ground in reality that those problems exist. And then a second problem is that you just have a single theoretical model that you don't have anything to compare to. So to, you know, TCE, there is comparative analysis and there also needs to be a, a comparative analysis across theories to see what is useful for the problem at hand. Uh, the third is the, the research design is not informed by practitioners and probably uh, one of the key sins uh, in our profession is a lot of our papers say significance, but we don't always distinguish statistical significance from and a lack of discussion of the coefficient, right? How much is the practical significance, not just the statistical significance uh, of the models we have. Now, here's some different types of engaged scholarship. The, 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 the thing I will say here is for the doctoral students is that the, the first three types of scholars, engaged scholarship are gonna be more relevant once you get tenure. They're not really options as a doctoral student. To write, so you're not going to write a dissertation with someone the likes of Andy Grove and co-author it together and then publish it for your dissertation. But, an idea, but the idea of collaborative research is a research team of insiders like Robert Bergelman at Stanford and Andy Grove. And then that paper was published in the Strategic Management Journal in 2007. So that would be an example of collaborative research. Another kind of research is design science, uh, not surprisingly begun by Herbert Simon and and then really championed in later years by Denise Rousseau. So this was her Academy of Management uh, presidential speech that was published in 2006. And what design science means is typical science is you would, get, you would collect data on all of the, let's say, bridges that have ever been built, and then you would provide an, a, a systematic review or a meta-analysis of all that's come before. But design science has a different orientation. Design science would ask, what's the bridge of the year 2030 going to look like? And so it's, it's kind of learning all of the principles of design building and then think about how are you going to build a better bridge? So that's kind of the idea of Herbert Simon in the science of the artificial is, uh, you know, how can you be forward thinking? And that of course is gonna resonate with managers. I remember one time, uh, discussions with Richard Burton, and I'm not referring to the person who's, uh, who was married to Elizabeth Taylor, but rather Rich Burton, the, uh, management, the management science editor from Duke. Matter of fact, uh, he actually grew up in Champaign-Urbana. He met his wife, who's from France, while he was in Champaign. But one time I was talking to Rich Burton, and, and, and Rich uh, said to me, uh, you, you know, the, the, the real difference between top executives and academics is not that one has theory and the other has practice because the best of the scholars are kind of like along the path here. They're, they're very aware of real world problems. And he said the best of the executives are as good a theorist as anyone in academia. So it's not really that as, as the major demarcation between academics and executives. His view was the major difference is that in in academics, we tend to be backward looking. We, we collect data and then we have a very odd way of saying prediction, right? You collect data from uh, 1980 to 1995 and then you make predictions, <laughs> but they're really predictions of something that happened a long time ago. So they're really, I guess, to be more precise, they're really explanations of things that have happened. You're predicting them within your model, of course, but design science is actually 
from from this point moving forward, what what is what are the management organizations going to look like five years from now? What are the anticipated innovations that are going to take place because of because of artificial intelligence and data analytics? And it's it's anticipatory. Once again, that's not much of an option for a doctoral student, though, because quite frankly, I'm not sure academics have a better view of the future than than uh, than a non-specialist. So in that sense, not clear that we can be the good judges of that. So. So, uh, so, so where we're moving for the recommendation for doctoral students will be uh, in a moment get, getting to uh, what the, we call engaged scholarship. Before that, there's one other comment and that is uh, Kurt Lewin uh, said, had the famous phrase that there's nothing so practical as a good theory, which we, we subscribe to. But I, I think Kurt Lewin's uh, had a lot of ideas of, about how to put ideas into practice and implement them. And I, uh, currently, I'm, 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 doing, I'm writing a book on, on uh, public versus private prisons, and I, I'm, I'm reading about a book on prisons today. Some of them are written by famous wardens like, uh, like at Joliet or Statesville in Illinois. Sometimes they're by prisoners. Sometimes they're by guards. Sometimes they're by politicians. And the thing that strikes me the most about this research of management. Matter of fact, I can't think of a more important context where the work of Barnard, Selznick, and other is applicable than the need for. I, I think the primary need in prisons is for better management. But the appreciation I have from reading all these books is that it's really hard to not have unintended consequences. So, so you can have a, you can bring in a few counseling psychologists to the prison and then all of a sudden they get co-opted by the prisoners and then, they, and then the prisoners are asking the warden to do certain things and then that, that disrupts the influence of the guards who then have less power than ever and that leads to more disruptions and that leads to more violence and that, le <laughs> and that leads to more lockdowns. And so at the end of the year, you actually have less rehabilitative services than you had at the beginning of the year when you made these small, what seemed like small incremental changes. So having said all that in, in reading in great detail in all these different books, I really appreciate this comment from Kurt Lewin. I think it's really profound. So let's let think about this quote, which I really think is his, a lifetime of experiences in this quote that he writes. If you want truly to understand something, try to change it. So in order to make things better, you're gonna to have to change it. But I think it's really helpful to think about strategic management in the, in the idea of experimentation in complex systems. And when you try to make changes, you are going to be, have a lot of surprises along the way. But I would say the good news is that over time, there is something called learning, right? So there is the detection and correction of error. So then over time, as you experiment, you can come up with making changes that actually that can be for the good. But it's kind, of, it's kind of naive to think that you can just walk into a system and necessarily change things for the better right away. But that brings us to what's really we recommend for doctoral students. And it's not a very, it, it, I think our proposal to doctoral students is, is about as radical as the ideas of Herbert Hoover, right? Our basic idea is to do everything you're currently doing for earning your doctorate degree. But in addition, 
make sure that you, you, you formulate your problem well. And to formulate your problem well, you need to ground it in reality, as Dan was mentioning he did with his various interviews early on in his career. And then also, you're going to look at the problem from afar. So you might have a data set, and you're going to be doing some, some attempts at generalization. But, you, but the triangulation comes when you look at the problem both from up close and from afar. And then some of, some of the, the insights will come about through that triangulation. So this is the end of an approach. And, and notice it starts with problem formulation. Did the other comment uh, uh, that, I, that well, I don't think we, we emphasize it enough in the paper, but I'll, I'll, maybe something to add here is, um, I, or, or maybe we didn't put it in because it's kind of sensitive, but I, I'm going to be recorded, but I'm going to say it anyway. I, I, think, I think most academics are not very good at problem formulation. I'll start out by saying that. I'm not sure I'm that great at problem formulation. I'll tell you a person who is good at problem formulation, Kathy Eisenhart. I'll tell you another person who's really great at problem formulation, and that's, that's her student, Melissa Grabner, who's at Illinois. So a lot of times I, I, I often do not speak first because I want to hear Melissa's formulation of the problem. And then all of a sudden everything gets a lot easier for me because she's so good at formulating the problem. So, so here's what happens to sometimes the, the dark area of the third year in your PhD program. Your first two years in the program, you're given lots of theories, you're, you're, you're given uh, research design. You may even get to the part where, there, where you have some practical relevance if you're lucky in your training. But then the third year, the doctoral student is then told, okay, now pick your problem and do your dissertation. But the, but the fact is that there may have been very little skill building about formulating problems. And that gets back to the Nickerson and uh, Zenger paper in 2004, their encouragement for the strategy field. And there, there is a large literature, by the way, on problem formulation. So within our doctoral seminars, uh, we would do well to, to include more papers on how to formulate problems, because if you don't formulate the problem well, you have no chance of doing a good dissertation. Okay. And then also that skill then can be helped. And, and, and by the way, part of the skill is, you know, what Dan did is just walking or, you know, going around and uh, talking to uh, managers at uh, Fairchild and Hewlett Packard and others. And that, that's the way you help to formulate your problem. And I mean, the fancy word for it is triangulation. So then we focus our, our, our paper a lot on this first step of the engaged scholarship. And so there, there's a kind of helpful language in philosophy of science. There's a, called the logic of discovery and the logic of justification. And so what I was just mentioning a moment ago, doctoral programs tend to be stronger in the logic of justification. That is the research design, rigorous methodology. As a matter of fact, probably stronger now than the field has ever been in terms of the methodologies. But, it, but it's kind of like, uh, you know, you're, you're trying to walk on two legs and uh, now we have a really powerful methodological leg, but a really atrophied other leg. And the other leg of the research process is the logic of discovery. And in that part of the process, the, discussed by Norwood Hansen in his book in 1958, is the problem of abduction. And the problem of abduction is that we, matter of fact, now in, now in this era of data analytics, we're going to have a lot of uh, observation of patterns and data but that doesn't mean, but, but there's still the, the, the process of like, like induction is the sun came up today, the sun will come up tomorrow. I predict it'll, it'll come up the following day. If I'm asked why I'll say, uh, I don't know. 
Well, that's induction. You just, it's just a pattern every day. Deduction is A is greater than B, B is greater than C, therefore A is greater than C. But the pr process of abduction is a little bit different than that. The, pr the process of abduction is, is you notice a pattern and like a real world example is learning curve. So when Wright uh, and others were uh, writing in 1936, the original paper on learning curves, it was just an observation of an empirical observation. It was an observation that when you have more cumulative output of planes, your unit production of the plane goes down. It was the first uh, known publication on, uh, or, or scientific publication on this learning curve process in the, in the context of manufacturing planes. When, when really push comes to shove though, there was not really a, a theory of learning. It was more of an observation empirically. And then later on in the 50s, uh, Kenneth Arrow wrote a very influ influential paper on, a, on, on the theoretical whys of why we observe the learning curve. And then it became a theory and because people were able to, to explain why the patterns existed in the data. And that's the process of abduction. It's, it's, it's you, you're aware that, a, that an empirical pattern exists but it's still crying out for a theoretical explanation of why we observe that pattern. So a, a lot of really great dissertations then can come about through the process of abduction. As a matter of fact, the very idea of coming up with a new hypothesis is almost synonymous with saying the process of abduction. You observe a problem, you observe something in the real world and you provide a theoretical explanation of why. And, and, the, and the why question is a key in the strategy field. The other point is if you, if you don't go through this process of triangulation and investigative, you're, you're likely to, to come up with what the statistician or mathematician John Tukey called type three error. That is you choose the wrong problem. So the relevance from research to practice then is lost before the translation even begins. Uh, my uh, person who influenced me greatly in, in, in my uh, life and strategy is Ned Bowman. He, his, his original book was Bowman and Fetter in 1957. So he was in operations research. So I think my imprinting in the strategy field has always uh, had a strong feeling of connection between operations management and strategic management. Uh, so, so Ned Bowman's comment is there's always the risk that the professor would rather interact intellectually with other professors and doctoral students than with executives. So I refer to this as you become a scholar who's part of the Chablis and Brie crowd. Maybe you basically go around for 30 years at conferences and have Chablis and Brie and all you talk to is the same group of people for 30 years. I myself, I, I wouldn't find that a very rewarding thing to do, the, the, you know, the original idea of the SMS was the ABCs, the academics, the business people, uh, and the practitioners. And I think having that mix at the SMS is, you know, to be, it's nice to have the Academy of Management where you really, you really go deep, like the T-shaped manager, right? I, I see a role for the Academy of Management being more on the drilling down on the disciplinary side, but that the SMS is a, is a nice complement of trying to have a more broad uh, brought a, a idea of different people learning from each other. That's the ideal anyway. So professional business schools, as with all professional schools, exist to help the profession, the managers and the managers to be. There, there, there needs to be a feeling among a 
certain number of people in strategic management that that's our purpose. So the practitioner and the research, to, to use Ned Bowman's terms, are doubly linked. The researcher supplies insights, relationships, and theory for the practitioner, but the practitioner supplies puzzles, ideas, judgments, and priorities for the researcher. So now we'll just go into some exemplars of the, and it won't go too much to details of this slide, we'll be covering them later, but, but some of the exemplar books that, that join theory and practice are Herbert Simon, who built up a, and when, uh, when, uh, when Dan was mentioning the company, the, the telephone company, uh, the, the, the specific one uh, that Chester Barnard worked with was the New Jersey Bell Tel Telephone Company. And so uh, Herbert, in fact, Chester Barnard wrote the foreword to the Herbert Simon uh, uh, original book on administrative behavior. And Chester Barnard said from all his years of experience, the, the Simon book resonates with him as a practitioner. So here's Herbert Simon, who's on his way to being a fundamental theorist and going on to win a Nobel Prize in economics years later. And yet we can see that a lot of his foundational knowledge was highly, highly connected and resonated with practitioners. Uh, Syrett and March's uh, book, The Behavioral Theory of the Firm. Uh, Edith Penrose uh, spent uh, the summer of 1954 uh, at the Hercules uh, Powder Company. She spent six weeks there. She really learned the process of diversification during those six weeks. And though even though her book in 1959 is written deductively, the, the argument is, is that it was essentially an abductive book. That is, she saw the patterns of diversification in the phenomenon, in the data, both up close through her six weeks at the Hercules Powder Company and then from afar by looking at uh, various uh, uh, economic studies and, and management studies on diversification at the, at the more aggregate level. And that then led to her 1959 book. So, so she provides theories to explain the patterns and the data that, that she sees from experience. Alfred Chandler, of course, is a, 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 had uh, studies of uh, major companies. He stu actually studied 70 companies, but the four companies in particular that he wrote great details on was uh, DuPont. And by the way, the D uh, in Alfred D. Chandler stands for DuPont. So he was part of the DuPont family. So some of, it, some of the uh, tremendous uh, records that he had for that particular chapter of his book, he got from the attic of one of his relatives. Was, all the materials were up in the, uh, in the attic of, of the home. He also did General Motors, Standard Oil, and Sears, which was a little bit later doing the multi-divisional. And then another example is Oliver Williamson was at the antitrust division in the late 1960s. And he was there with uh, Richard Posner and they were doing the Schwinn bicycle case. Uh, case. And Posner wrote the opinion that it was monopoly power by Schwinn Bicycle. And, uh, and Williamson wrote to Posner that he didn't think that's what was going on at all, but uh, that the brief had pretty much been written at that point. And that, that's, the way, uh, that, that's the way the case was written up and prosecuted for the Schwinn case. But, but, but the dissatisfaction that Williamson had when he returned to Penn in the, in the, in the late 60s and early 70s led to him developing, because he knew from, from practice that the current theories that existed on vertical integration were not relevant for the problems he was encountering. I suspect today for young scholars, and I'm not going to be capable of doing this because, because I'm, I'm too set in, in, in my, or my lack of technological knowledge makes it impossible for me to do this. But 
But for, for those who, 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 are, who are writing about platforms and about, uh, I still think there's a lot written about platforms, but there's not very much theory about platforms. And there's, there's a lot of technology stuff out there that are, that are crying for abductive reasoning. So, so to, for, for people to provide the know why, not just collect the data and rush to publish something without really providing something fundamental. So that's what Williamson did here. He, he, he knew the problem. He knew the current theory was not relevant, that there was going to be a need for a new paradigm or way of thinking. And then that he developed his, uh, probably his most path-breaking paper was his, his Academy of, or his uh, uh, American Economic Review paper in 1971, which was kind of a breakthrough of a new, and as a matter of fact, in, in, a, in, an auto, in, a, in an interview he did in 1990, Williamson uh, commented that he really thought he was the first human being to ever really understand vertical integration. So it can, be, it can be very satisfying to think of a new problem and really feel that you make a breakthrough in understanding why that pattern exists. So just, just, uh, just to move quick, quickly, so I already covered the Herbert Simon on administrative behavior influenced by Chester Barnard, who we see there on the right. Chester, to me, just kind of reminds me of like a kindly uncle kind of, <laughs> kind of persona about him. He, he, was, he was actually very, uh, very spiritual person. Uh, and as a matter of fact, I, I, I think he wrote at the age of 12 that he wanted to live his life uh, in the service of Christ. And, and I think if you actually read the book, although there's no mention whatsoever of religion in the book whatsoever, I, I think the spirit of the book of his ideas on responsibility and, and, uh, and, and cooperation and trying to achieve something good in management, I think it permeates every page of his book although it's written in a very abstract way, but I think underpinning it, I think he had a real passion for what he was doing. Uh, so that led, leads then to uh, Herbert Simon's uh, building off of uh, Barnard and had the, this idea of the zone of acceptance of a, a bottom-up theory of authority, which I think has become a, a powerful uh, way of thinking about authority applied uh, today in scholarship. The other idea that comes from the book is that bounded rationality is key. So, so the, the key bottleneck is the brain. Or the other way to say, we, uh, I'm very happy to say Illinois just hired uh, um, uh, Will Ocasio. And of course, Ocasio has the attention-based view of the firm that was published in SMJ. It's, uh, uh, Dan, uh, happy to let you know if you didn't already that that paper is just really, it also thinks won an award too, but the paper in terms of citations has really taken off in recent years. So, so, uh, so Ocasio builds up from, uh, from Herbert Simon's idea that attention is the chief bottleneck in organizational activity. And that bottleneck becomes narrower and narrower as we move to the tops of the organization. So it's, it's literally possible for the tops of organizations to be living in a fantasy world of their own echo chamber if they're not, uh, if they're not uh, grounded in the reality back with uh, what's going on among the uh, workers in their organization. The other insight, which I think is, uh, I, I still think there, there, there practically needs to be a dissertation for anyone, in, particularly in connecting strategy to management information systems from this, from this idea from Herbert Simon. Uh, and by the way, the other thing to notice is Herbert Simon is really strong with metaphors and the metaphors help him to communicate the key ideas he wants to. So, and, this, and, and, and the metaphors are interspersed in almost every paper Simon writes, which I think is part of why he was so impactful. So his comment, his memorable comment is a rabbit rich world 
is a lettuce poor world and vice versa. Similarly, in an information rich world, an abundance of information means a dearth of something else, a scarcity of whatever information consumes. And information consumes the attention of its recipients. And then here's where I think a dissertation, the, the beginning of a, of a core of a dissertation would come from. Information systems, and by the way, I don't know about your information system at Purdue, but my information system at Illinois, or I don't know about your one at Alabama, but, but my information system is like talking to me all the time and is never listening. But it would be really great if we had more of an information system that listens and thinks more than it speaks. So stating the organization problem in this way leads to a very different system design that deals with information overload. And it's really, to me, kind of surprising that in our strategy field, we've spent, we've, we've, and I do think opportunism is an important problem and safeguarding opportunism is clearly an important role for, matter of fact, we're talking about safeguarding in prisons, it's absolutely essential. But I, I, I think the field uh, would benefit by thinking more about better ways to manage with the information overload and bounded rationality problems. Anyway, on to the, Sire, uh, the uh, Carnegie School of Sire in March. Uh, what I find when I teach executives is even though this is very academic language, here's the point is, is um, what, we, what we need to appreciate about categories is that, or, or, or let me, I'll backtrack a little bit. There was an assistant professor about 10 years ago who came to Illinois and he gave his categorization scheme first. And then he said to the seminar room, what do you think of my classification scheme? And I just raised my hand and said, I won't know how good your classification system is until I know what your problem is. Because the effectiveness of a categorization scheme is not independent of its problem. It's like, you know, uh, there was a story I read in a book one time. It was, uh, it was actually in an introductory international business textbook of all places. And the, the author started by saying, there's a, there's a little girl on the beach and uh, she collects a lot of stones and the stones are all different colors. And she puts the beautiful blue ones and then the, the reddish ones. And she, she has an aesthetic eye for how to group all of the stones. But then a, a ship comes from outer space and the aliens drop a great big canvas bag over her and she's stuck in, on the beach entrapped within this bag, kind of connects to my prison uh, kind of work, I guess. So she's imprisoned within, but then she looks at the stones in a very different way. So then she starts to classify the stones, for example, by how jagged their edges are, because she has a problem that she has to cut her way out of the bag. And so she then has a different categorization scheme for the very same resources. And that's what Penrose means by the services of the resources. And as she even emphasizes in her book, that the services of the resource depend on the problem at hand. So it gets back to the Nickerson and Zenger stuff. It gets back to, to Dan's uh, approach to strategic management from its beginning, which is, which is why we keep saying, let's get back to thinking about problems and developing theory that way. But the other thing I would say is if you, if you think about theory as typologies, that the typologies can't be independent of the problems either. So, so the thing I would say about the categorization schemes provided by Syrton and March is 
the really cool thing for me is when I would teach executives and then we would have lunch together, they would tell their own stories and their own companies, but their shared language would be, they would say things like quasi resolution of conflict and uncertainty avoidance at the table because it was their shared language. And then every one of them would tell different stories in their own company. So, so the, the reason this book has stood the test of time is the categories are relevant to, to human experience. And, that, and that's uh, part of, I think, what we want to achieve in the strategic management field. We want to have, we want to be in Pastor's quadrant of being quite rigorous with our new methodologies, but not to be detached from choosing problems that are relevant. We can have both. And, and so, but we, we just need to put in the effort to do both. And then that kind of led uh, the, the sire and march and like, I think stakeholder theory, and that's a picture of the Carnegie School there, uh, that the stakeholder view of the firm is really taking hold in a way uh, in the last few years that, uh, so, and, I, and, and by the way, that kind of view of management is in all, like, well, I think what was really detached in research in the 1990s, we were, we were having a tremendous amount of studies about stock price in our research, but yet when we all go into the classroom, we all teach strategy about how is this going to, how is our customers going to react? How is it going to affect the suppliers? How are the employees going to react? And so forth. So all of our case teaching in the Socratic method of cases invariably will, will be almost uh, usually, if not always from a stakeholder perspective, but then our research was very stock price oriented. But I, I think the early strategic management stuff back in the ANSOF era in the 60s was much, the research and the, and the teaching was much more connected. So I think in some sense, I, I think this idea of being more problem oriented may dovetail very well with having a more prominence of stakeholder theory in the and, and by the way, stakeholder theory is, is going back to the inducements contribution balance that, uh, that uh, Herbert Simon referred to in uh, the 1940s and 50s. Matter of fact, the, I think the original inducements contribution uh, terminology was actually used by Chester Barnard in the functions of the executive. So, so in other words, but, but you can then put all kind of fancy uh, methodology on that. If you're, if you're a mathematician, you can be doing cooperative game theory where basically, or the, matter of fact, there's a book by Aoki in 1980 called The Cooperative Game Theory of the Firm where you, may, you, know, you can either talk about it descriptively or in mathematically, but it's the idea of you need to keep people in the coalition. If you have no customers, you have no business. If you have your employees all leaving with their skills, you have no business. So, you, so, you, so the glue has to hold this organization together. And a large part of that is actually managers because managers are often uh, thought by Herbert Simon as the mediators or arbitrators, if you will, among the various legitimate uh, uh, tensions among the various stakeholders. So that's there. I mentioned already at the Hercules Powder Company is where Penrose got a lot of her ideas. And, and uh, I think Tim Folta still, still in his doctoral courses teaches the Penrose 1960 paper in Business History Review. It's a, it's a marvelous paper on, uh, on diversification uh, with, with the real world experience. Uh, and and there's, the really surprising thing about that paper is if you were to read that paper and then read the Chandler book, you would swear that they had talked to each other but, uh, they're, they're, but I actually have a letter written by Chandler. By the way, I, I started in the profession when I actually had hard copy letters. So I would get hard copy letters from, from Dan uh, Shandell. Usually that was either an acceptance or rejection letter, but at least I was getting them in hard copies. 
And then, uh, but also I got hard copies from uh, Alfred Chandler and uh, Oliver Williamson and Bill Ouchi and Harold Demsetz. And the other interesting thing I would say of what I learned is that the most engaged scholars were the ones that actually wrote back. The second tier people never wrote back to me, much to my surprise at the time, but it's not really a puzzle. The, the, the really great scholars are engaged with ideas and, it, and as awkward as I was in my writing back then, I guess they recognized that I was grappling with ideas and then they, uh, they responded in kind and wrote back to me. So Penrose actually then, uh, I think one of the cool ideas in the book if you're interested in entrepreneurship is Penrose uh, coined the term of subjective opportunity set. So in economics, you have a production possibility frontier of guns and butter that's common knowledge and well-defined. But for her, the idea is that different firms with different experiences will have different ab uh, abductive processes, if you will, of the same data. So that the meaning of the data is not independent of the past experiences people have, and therefore the opportunity set will be seen differently in different firms, and that will be one reason why you have heterogeneity of firms. The interesting thing about uh, Edith is that she was a doctoral student of Fritz Matchlup, and Fritz Matchlup was uh, an Austrian economist, and then her ideas were really very much the idea of Austrian economics. At the same time, though, Fritz Matchlup was the was the quintessential neoclassical economist from the marginalist era. So she was also very strong in, in the economics of the neoclassical economics. And I think that there's a lesson there for her book. Her book is radically, radically different than, than the paradigm of neoclassical economics in 1951, but yet she, she, was, uh, she had as much expertise on the neoclassical theory of the firm as any scholar of 1959. So, so if you really want to be heard and you want to be radically different, you have to, you, it, your credibility goes way, way up if you show your chops that you know, you know how to do things in the conventional way and you get it and you can do it. And then you're more likely to get a hearing. Okay, you've demonstrated that you know all the conventional stuff and then you'll get a better hearing about having really radically new ideas. And I, I would describe the Penrose book in that way. I think one of her key ideas was actually put into a picture. I use this in my uh, doctoral class. And so, so her idea is that there's a range of profitable growth and, and that the goal of the firm is profitable growth. But if you try to grow at a rate that's too fast, bad things are gonna happen. An example of what happened at Illinois is in 1995, when it just that I had gotten tenure, that year we decided to go from an MBA class of 150, that, that would sound huge right now, the way the world is, but we went from 150 students to 300 MBA students all in one year. I would say that was kind of like being a G2 <laughs> in this picture. We, we, we grew at such a fast rate that that I, what happened in our ratings is at the time we were the 20th ranked MBA program and within four years, we were outside of the top 50. And the reason for that is we're just growing way too fast that we were just dysfunctional. And that's actually called the Penrose effect. The Penrose effect is if you try to grow too fast, your current people aren't gonna handle what you're doing currently very well. And then things can really implode. So, so, so here's another key idea of, how to be different is that it, up until 1959, the question was always, what is the optimal size of the firm? 
Edith Penrose changed the conversation by changing the question. And she changed the question by not asking what's the optimal size of the firm, but what's the optimal growth rate of the firm. And once again, she got that by being grounded in reality of talking to real world managers where that was the problem that she discerned that they were having. And then she developed a deductive theory from a relevant question that was coming, that was originating from, from uh, practice. And then she brought it into theory and then connected it to the conversation of economics. Of course, the quintessential uh, business historian is Alfred Chandler. And uh, I don't think that it's, it uh, takes much effort to say that he was a very engaged scholar connecting theory and practice. And also think about how impactful his work uh, has been to the strategy field. Uh, one, one cautionary note to say about his work is that uh, I used to say that uh, multi-divisionals is becoming more decentralized, but a close reading of the Chandler books will, will clearly show that, that the, the process of centralization or decentralization depends on your reference point. So when he tells, in fact, that's why, why you get so many theoretical insights from his book. So when he tells his first major chapter on DuPont, it's a story of a family owned business who's, who's trying to experiment to a new form called a multi-divisional. And for them, they have to let go, let go of control. So they become more decentralized in their way of getting to multi-divisionals. But then in his next chapter, he talks about General Motors, but they were more like a holding company. They were extraordinarily decentralized. And for them to have some kind of order and some kind of uh, some kind of common auditing and, and comparing of cash flows across divisions for General Motors, the process was they needed to learn to become more centralized in order to become multidivisional. So these rich case studies can, and of course, and one of the books that uh, Dan mentioned was was Remelt's uh, 1974 book, which was an empirical study of the Chandler work on multidivisionals. And so you can see that the rich case studies then funnel in to uh, Rommelt's uh, seminal empirical book. And then if you look at the early years in the 1980 to 1990 strategic management uh, journal, there are many fine papers on multidivisional forms in uh, other countries, France, England, Germany, and then they're all published in SMJ to kind of extend uh, the Chandler uh, works and to see how generalizable they were to other countries. So in some sense, you really, I guess the appreciation is that, that we become strong together as a field, right? And so part of the message of this paper is, is while, we be, while we continue to become stronger in methodologies, which is great to not be hopping around like a decathlon athlete on one leg, but rather that you make more progress if we don't let the logic of discovery leg of developing theories atrophy too much and then those theories have to be developed by being grounded in reality. And then I was I already told the story of, uh, of uh, Oliver Williamson being influenced by the Schwinn bicycle case. Of course, these practical problems then, then can, can be the, uh, what makes a uh, Nobel Prize winning theory. So, so that canonical problem to use Williamson's language of, of what determines the boundaries of the firm then led him to think about all types of uh, market frictions and problems that can occur. And then this vocabulary, while, while granted this vocabulary is quite academic, it, it, it's a categorization scheme that summarizes 
most of the reasons and most of the problems that managing, of course, there's going to be a need to change the language if you're going to teach an executive class, but it's a wonderful uh, uh, a checklist of market frictions that you, one then can look at for then informing uh, both theory in the, in the discipline and also the relevant problems of managers. So it really provides it and also turned, turned out to be so applicable to capital markets, labor markets, uh, value chain, and so intermediate product markets and so forth. And then also, of course, a, a major impact for, uh, for international business. I mean, a tremendous <laughs> number. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, of JIB studies. Uh, I'll, I'll skip over that without enough time. So, so the, ma the major point that, that we're making in the paper though is um, my, our paper though reminds me a little bit of something I just read yesterday. <laughs> and what I just read yesterday, I, I was reading on the work of Jack Muth. And the comment was that Jack Muth's idea of rational expectations was, was written and, and then he presented it at many universities. And um, it turned out that the, it, 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 was, it was just a radical change, both in terms of how macroeconomics is taught and also radical changes in how econometrics is done. So both on a theory level and, a, and an empirical level, everything in research had to change in the field of economics because of Jack Muth's idea. But the comment that Robert Lucas, another Nobel Prize winner, had about his paper is Jack went out to the market and presented his work and everyone patted him on the head and said, that's really interesting. And then they went back to doing everything just exactly as they did before. And it took a couple of decades before his idea really became appreciated by Sargent and Laura, uh, Wallace and Sargent and others. And then the, 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 the radical implications of his idea came later. In some ways, when I presented, not that our paper is anywhere near <laughs> a contribution of Jack Mew, but, but the similarity is the following. When I, when I presented this, I don't know about, about Paul's uh, uh, experiences, but I presented, the, I, I really think when presenting to the elite schools, I'm really suggesting a radically different approach for most scholars within a business school than is done within the elite schools. And when I present it, I'm really expecting a fight. And usually what I get is a pat on the head saying, that's interesting. I don't, I don't think they have, they have any, any, uh, any plan to change anything soon. But, but I think that if people really understand the paper, we're, we're really challenging the fundamental way that business schools are designed, right? And so I, I, at the very least, I wish some people would, would be more pissed off with us. <laughs> because, then, because then at least it would, be, it would be that they processed the paper and that they were really challenging the status quo because that's exactly what our paper is doing. And that's kind of then a, a segue to uh, the last book. And, and, then, and then what Paul's going to discuss is you know, that what the concept that Williamson had is, is remediableness. You can't just talk about problems that can't be fixed. You have to talk about problems where there's some remediable solutions. And so uh, that'll, that'll be a set for Paul. Then we'll discuss maybe some practical things we could do as at least humble steps towards being more engaged scholars, which is what the idea of this paper is for the strategic management field. And the last thing I'll say before I sign off is I'm really super happy that this paper is published because for many, many, many years, I, I heard a lot of great ideas from, from Dan at our dinner, uh, dinner conversations and elsewhere, and they were never down on paper 
And I'm really glad for posterity that this, uh, this paper is there and that these videos are here because I think they're kind of really legacies for the strategic management field uh, to be a guide in the, the years ahead. And then this is kind of the spirit uh, of our paper said by the great statistician, John Tukey. Far better an approximate answer to the right question, which is often vague, than the exact answer to the wrong question, which can always be made precise. So to put it in modern terms, the exercise is not always to pick the question where you can then have the diff and diff and the instrumental variable. So the, the strategic management field needs to develop by, like Connie Helfat often says, it's about asking important questions. And that's the legacy of the field. And if we just become better and better at uh, econometric identification, we might as well just become labor economists because they're, they're the gold standard at that. So if we really wanna know our identity and our contribution, it's, uh, it's thinking about strategic management problems. Okay, and, and, and now that I've done uh, the easy part, Paul will try to provide some remedies, which I still think is the hardest part of the paper. Thank you, Joe, I appreciate it. And Rich, I'll try to keep this quick and I, I guess Joe can uh, follow along, we'll leave the slide deck up to keep things moving uh, smoothly. We'll do, we'll do on that, so that'll make a smooth transition here. So the uh, this is essentially the addressing the limitation sections, because I, I think anybody, any um, dean or department head would say, uh, or, or tell faculty and professors probably do as well with their doctoral students, don't just bring me problems, but you know bring me solutions as well. So we uh, can't just have a paper that's just talking about the issues and the challenges and the problems. Uh, within the field, but we also wanted to pose some solutions and, we, and we've posed the solutions, but there's always limitations. As Joe said, we kind of get the pat on the back and we present this. He's presented it a number of times and I, I've presented it a few times already. And you don't really get the pushback as much as you thought that everybody tends to nod and agree with it, but doesn't get back. And a lot of this reason is because of the kind of these impediments or, and, and there's a variety of impediments to implementing the, the kind of the solutions we're, we're suggesting for bridging this theory practice gap and, and kind of uh, returning strategic management to a, um, a, a better path or maybe back to its original path. Um, and, and these are on both the practice side and the research side. And in terms of the practice side, um, you know, we've had an emergence of, of kind of a, a different role of academics and consultants, which has, has come about over the past several decades. Uh, which we talk about in detail in the paper, but with the large consulting firms, uh, the McKinsey's, the, the Booz Allen Hamilton's, the, the Bain's, the Boston Consulting Groups and, and, and the lot, essentially emerging and taking over the role that the academics used to play, uh, you know, perhaps 80, 100 years ago, but, you know, throughout the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, and the, the consultants now provide the labor and, and the solutions, um, and, and not from a public good perspective, but to monetize the knowledge and the frameworks and things to practice. And this has kind of cut academics off from the puzzles that are going on in practice. And so one of the, one of the solutions is to, or one of the issues we raise is to acknowledge that and pose a number of solutions on the research side as to how we can kind of um, uh, regain access through, through engaging with both consultants and practice, practice people, essentially the Bs and the Cs, uh, the business practitioners and the consultants, which are Kind of a diminishing and dwindling um, group of, of, of the um, conferences and our professional societies and stuff which we're trying to re-engage and that's one of the solutions we talk about um, and so 
there's essentially this is the cause of academics in a lot of cases being cut off from the knowledge coming from practice that's arisen over the, the last several decades. Uh, on the research side issues, uh, we have them both kind of internally and externally. In, internally, there's a number of impediments and, and challenges to the incentives we have with, with uh, doctoral training, with recruiting faculty, how faculty are incentivized, um, the faculty promotion and tenure processes within business schools. And then on the professional, on the kind of the external side of the research side, dealing with academic journals, societies, accreditation organizations, but the incentives are, are not aligned with, of course, with journals, with professional societies and with accreditation organizations. So, so how do we improve PhD programs? And, and, and in a week, how do, how do we do this? And I, I've just, a number of my students are on here. We just finished teaching a strategy seminar in the spring semester here at Alabama and tried to bring these things in, but how do we, how do we bring in more of these puzzles from, from the outside? How do we bring in um, methods? And, and some of the, the challenge we, we see is that most PhD programs with, with few exceptions are publication focused and train PhD programs to fill gaps. And, and so what we call kind of non-value adding gap filling research and, and um, using existing theory, using single research methodologies, single theories. And, and these are done for a number of reasons. You know, one we're you know, for a variety of things, we're trying to get uh, students need to publish in order to place Students need to, uh, young academics need to publish in order to make tenure, of course, which we'll get into a little bit later here in the, in, on the slides. But also that um, the easiest path is the path of least resistance, which is what we often teach in PhD programs to try not to have too many theories or too much going on in a paper. Don't bring everything but the kitchen sink into your paper in a seminar or coming out of a seminar into a dissertation. You're involving too many reviewers, too many topics, too many different confusions, too many loose threads that are hard to tie up. And it's a very difficult path to publish if, if we're going that route. So, and unfortunately we're somewhat, lim we're limiting doctoral students and causing this problem in academics by teaching doctoral students to pursue uh, small gap problems existing in current conversations in the literature and, and focused on problems coming out of the academic journals and the recent conversations they're having, which are not connected in the least bit from, from practice problems. So we, we have this knowledge production problem here that we're not even beginning with the practice of knowledge as Joe was talking about earlier, solving practical problems. And then of course, we're, we're suggesting limiting to single theory, single methods. And a lot of the, the training is then driven by, by theory, by methods rather than phenomenon driven uh, and problem solving or problem driven training. Uh, we try to address some of that by focusing more on real world problems and practically relevant problems and getting, getting around addressing the knowledge production problem uh, for PhD students. Uh, but the methods are also an issue in, in as, as Joe was mentioning earlier, doctoral students really need to be trained in triangulation approaches um, in, in using mixed methods, mixed qualitative and quantitative approaches um, in, in triangulation and kind of getting at a problem from multiple areas. And I'll, I'll, I'll pull a Jay Barney here and give a shout out to two of my doctoral students on the call here, uh, Chris Irwin and Larry Tribble, who was on earlier, but both of them used um, triangulation approaches and, and multiple different approaches in their dissertations, probably much to their chagrin, but hopefully it was beneficial for them in adopting some of this logic, which I you know, learned from Joe and Dan in working on this. Um, the, you know, doctoral students, you know, how can they, how can we improve PhD programs in general um, you know, leverage executive education, you know, can we get doctoral students into executive education? Can we leverage executives? Can we bring uh, practice practitioners and consultants 
into the classroom, into the PhD programs? Can we get problems and puzzles uh, within that? We, we make suggestions in the paper, uh, detailed suggestions in the paper, you know, bringing consultants, uh, partners from a local consulting firm or their local office into the seminar or the workshop, um, recruiting faculty members that are connected to real world problems um, and extending, you know, and how do we extend such real world problem formulation approaches into the PhD program. You know, one thing that we've done successfully and I'd advocate that we probably started at Purdue a long time ago is to, um, and I've continued at Alabama, but get the students out into the field, get them talking to managers, get them on projects, even at the undergraduate or graduate level and doctoral students who are teaching, get them involved in that. It, it's much more work on the teaching side of things, but if you're involving student teams solving real problems for real businesses in the community, not only is it a service learning opportunity and helping the local business community and giving students real world um, experience, but also the academic is getting connected to the current problems and puzzles that the business, business practitioners are struggling with at the time. So, um, so how do we deal with this? These are all nice things to talk about, but unfortunately none of them are going to necessarily get a, get a student hired at this point in time in a good academic institution or get a, a junior faculty member promoted and tenured. So some of the changes we need are, are around those areas. And, and some of this may be wishful thinking, but we brought them into the paper anyway, just to proposing the problems. We wanted to raise the issues and make suggestions as to how things could be approved and knowing this would take time um, to address. But you know, can we count more impact, you know, potentially more impactful scholarly publications? You know, count research books, count grant research and, and, and grant studies. And that, that's something that a number of schools have gotten into, particularly as business schools have looked for sources of external funding um, uh, beyond normal approaches, uh, public-private partnerships and things as well. But other colleges and departments outside of the business schools do these, should business schools and management departments um, look into those types of things for counting more, uh, a more broader perspective of what counts for promotion and tenure beyond, say, just the top six journals that many of the, the major schools look at. Um, incentivize more collaboration, funding opportunities, research interaction, a public-private collaboration, uh, for sure, you know, bringing in money from the outside and also access to the problems, which is a nice uh, opportunity. And then even faculty internships or, or internships within industry, uh, of taking sabbaticals, perhaps working with a company or working with problems or working with, with startups. Um, and uh, some of my colleagues on the entrepreneurship side have a lot of fun with this and spend a lot of time working with the students um, on, on things and teaching them and getting immersed in it and helping them with these, these challenges they're facing, which also can lead to some interesting research um, questions and things to work on. And then longer tenure clocks for decisions as well uh, to allow faculty more time to pursue these types of things. Um, you know, another on the academic side, the journal side, the society side, uh, you know, bringing in reviewers, uh, you know, from, from the practice side, the bringing in B and C's as, as one of the reviewers, perhaps, uh, to provide a somewhat different perspective or help the authors develop the, um, the knowledge transfer potential of the problem or reshape the knowledge production problem uh, with, within the papers uh, as they're going through the review process. So we said encourage uh, more, uh, academic societies to re-engage and re reach out to the B and C practitioners, the business practitioners and the consultants. This has been addressed, as we said, both in the 2016 uh, review of the five-year review of the strategic management division at the Academy, but also in the most recent 2021 review, which hasn't been published yet, uh, about the declining B and C participation and the need to really engage much more 
uh, with those communities and, and bring them as an active part in, into, into our academic communities and our societies. Um, and then directly involved, direct involvement more with executives, consulting companies in the conference program. This was something that SMS used to do uh, very effectively um, on that. And hopefully we'll return to live in-person conferences in the near future and we can re-engage with bringing in the executives, the panels and things like that um, within. And that's something we're still working on and striving to do within the strategic management division. And I'm sure SMS is still directly involved in putting some of these interesting programs together, but bringing in the executives. So we're exposing the ac academic community and the students to the puzzles and the challenges that executives are facing uh, within the real world. Um, and then finally, in conclusions, um, again, the, or the conclusions, we're advocating that we can produce research um, that is kind of getting back to our roots, that is, that is both uh, rigorous and practically relevant, but academically rigorous and practically relevant. So almost essentially we're returning to where Dan and, and Arnie Cooper and, and some of the early founders took the field or, or pushed the field or helped nudge the field in the 1960s, kind of away from um, case research and, and business uh, policy but into providing kind of the rigorous, ac rigorous academic rig um, rigor of the statistical methods of the data of having hard evidence, but also with um, having um, strong problems to begin with, practically relevant problems, returning to the knowledge production side of things by suggesting take a prob problem formulating, problem solving approach um, with um, Tepo Fellon's work with Todd Zenger and Jackson Nickerson's work with, with, with Zenger as well. And that uh, Joe has mentioned earlier, um, add engaged scholarship, bring in you know, Andy Vandeven's work, uh, focusing on the engaged scholar with practically relevant problems, formulate those problems well, solve those problems, essentially, and then bring in pragmatism as well, the philosophy of pragmatism and, and saying that the validity of arguments is based upon, uh, depends on the consequences of acting upon it. So the, the essentially that's the solution approach we're advocating. We think you can have practical relevance with academic rigor. We can get back to kind of producing the, 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 the using the approach that produced the seminal work in our field and that future scholars going forward can kind of uh, return to that path and, and do both at this point in time. So historically, as we're saying, as we're uh, wrapping up here, but such a problem focused, you know, pragmatic scholarly and engaged process led to the seminal work in the field and underpins the core theories in the strategic management field. We have a lot of detail on that in the paper. Joe gave a quick summary of that, but essentially every major um, fundamental piece in the, in the field, fundamental theory, fundamental work, fundamental book. I remember we had the Essentially, we had, I think, 50-some uh, uh, of these books we had to read in the PhD program at Purdue back in my day, and I imagine the students are still responsible for some of that knowledge there. Um, but essentially, all of that was underpinned by practical experience, real-world problems uh, from engaged scholars engaging in this process, and, and which led to that. And we're, we're arguing that by readopting this logic of discovery and, and focusing on the knowledge production process of engaged scholarship, we can produce, scholars can produce scientifically rigorous and practically relevant research that develops new theoretical contributions and bridges the theory of practice gap in addressing real world problems and creating real economic value for society. So it's not an either or case, but we could bring everything together within that. So, and, and Joe, I'm gonna throw the ball back into your court to kind of let you wrap up with our final observation here. Okay, so. thank you. 
And I'll throw it back to you for the, the final, final slide. Okay. <laughs> so uh, our, our argument is that uh, we, in the paper, we talk a lot about methodologies, but uh, I, the, the, the key idea for the development of the field is, which I wrote a very long time ago. Matter of fact, I think the first time Dan ever, Chandel ever um, met me was at uh, a conference in 1989, May of 1989. It was with Gary Willard and, and uh, how it was hosted by Howard Thomas. And that was the first time I talked, my talk was on good science is good conversation. And uh, I remember Gary Willard coming up to me afterwards and saying he thought that good management in companies was good conversation too, which was really funny because you, Dan, you then walked up to me about two minutes later and said, what do you think the practic practical relevance of this is for managers? And so I just repeated what Gary Willard just said to me a minute earlier, <laughs> or else I might not have had that ready answer for you right at that moment. But anyway, so, so the, the idea of good conversation is actually comes from uh, the works of McCluskey in, in economics, but uh, he, he draws from a philosopher, a pragmatic philosopher uh, by the name of uh, Jürgen Habermas. And Habermas uh, uses some fancier language, uh, but, but uh, it, it's the idea of communicative action. Uh, indeed, the speech act that, that, that that you know, meaning comes about through action, but but speaking is actually considered to be part of action, and and words can matter quite a bit when you're a leader. About using the right word or the wrong word can have a profound difference. The other connection is one of attitude. So, and and maybe the other thing to say is, is these ideas are more relevant than ever. I think when we go to the national meetings and you have the people in the first two rows of the conference sitting there while the person has spent the entire year working on these, th this 15 minute talk and you have people just sitting there typing away, uh, doing texting, looking at their cell phone, that's not building a community. So, so in the long run, all of these things will not matter if we do not have a, a community that has ethical rules. And the other thing to add about attitude is, I, I like Vandevin's comment on page six of his book, there is a profound emphasis on the concept of deep respect, and I might say humility vis-a-vis -vis other kinds of knowledge products. If we don't have a respect for each other, we, we won't have interdisciplinary conversations and we won't be practical in solving problems. So, so there has to be a, as a matter of fact, when I gave that talk in May, as the first time I ever gave a talk in strategy was at that conference. That was my very first talk. And I remember Rafi Ahmed was there and he came up after me and he was, he just said, yes, uh, the field is about, we agree to disagree. And what I find in the field these days is uh, every time people disagree, so, and disagreement does not imply disrespect. As a matter of fact, Ned Bowman used to all, always mention to me, having more debates in the field will make our field better. So having a recognition that conversation and debates are really important for our field. So, so Habermas uh, had more fancy language in this. This is actually the McCluskey uh, down-to-earth interpretation of Habermas. So Habermas's basic view in his book is don't lie, give attention, don't sneer. There's a lot of sneering in academia, by the way. Uh, cooperate, don't shout, let other people talk, be open-minded. I think that was, that was a key. Uh, I, I think the proof is in the pudding of the Strategic Management Journal. If you look at the journal, it's it has citations from more journals 
uh, it's really an open system approach to knowledge. Uh, just about every journal has can have a hearing within it. Like there, there are other journals that have a very narrow set of journals that are people can reference. But uh, I like I like the open system model for evolutionary survival. So explain yourself when asked. Don't resort to violence or conspiracy in the aid of your ideas. So ultimately, we mentioned towards the conclusion of our paper, if the norm of listening, which is hard work, by the way, really listening to others at our conferences and classrooms is lost in face-to-face -face interact interactions, then our scholarly communities, which we take for granted, may become more impoverished. So a, a lot of the success of the strategy field moving forward will be attitudinal in terms of respect, in terms of listening to each other, in terms of learning from each other. If we can maintain that, that community, uh, that'll be the key. And, uh, and as uh, Forrest Gump would say, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> okay, the last slide. You, you have to position, uh, where is this on campus and uh, do you have any memories of this? Excellent. That is, um, that's in the center of campus. I used to take, uh, I took a couple stats classes right near that. It was um, called the engineering fountain. Yeah, the engineering fountain, okay. But Rich, thank you for the opportunity for us to present it. So. Well, and thank you, Paul and, and Joe and Dan for, for taking an afternoon to, to share with us these uh, deep and provocative uh, ideas uh, that are challenging and uh, uh, giving us a, a new way to think about what the heck we do in this field. Thanks very much. Yeah, I just want to say thank you to, to all the Purdue uh, folks over the years that have really made uh, the field possible. True enough. Boiler up, yeah. Well, I, th I, think, I think at Purdue, uh, strategic management has always had sympathy. But let me thank you, Rich, for talking away. I uh, appreciate it very much. I think you're doing great work. And so are you, Joe, and so are you, Paul. Thank you. And I hope all you students go on to do great things. Thank you.